We're here to encourage you, to build you up, to edify, to strengthen. It's the role of the body. And we are studying the body of Christ together in our study on the efficient functioning of the church. And so today I'm going to have you actually join me in 1 Corinthians 12. I know, we were in chapter 1. I told you this is a study of 1 Corinthians 12. And uh, so today we're actually going to dive in 1 Corinthians 12, the first four verses. Now don't get excited that I'm going to go fast. Right, just because there's four verses here in front of us today. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers... Brethren, some translations even have brothers and sisters. I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. I'm going to stop right there. We've spent three weeks in our study here concerning the identity of the church. That was back in chapter 1. We worked through that. Especially the emphasis I gave that this is God's project. (laughs) This is what He's doing in our midst. And it's good for us to have that perspective. I'm going to keep bringing that back to the 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 context as we work through it, because context is vital. We don't just randomly start anywhere in the passage of Scripture without understanding these great observations and even the applications that we need to work through must be based on the context. That's so important, and yet uh, easily overlooked. The passage we just heard this morning is tricky. It's tricky to start into chapter number 12 with especially verse 2 and 3. Because we have come to want to know how does a church efficiently function. That's the study. And it's really very tempting to start in verse 4. Just to kind of bypass this, because we want to get to the practical stuff and... and, uh, These verses seem a little odd to you, maybe. We're going to talk about them today. I've never been quite uh, ready to step around a passage (laughs) that I thought was a little harder to comprehend. It's almost like a a challenge. When I read it, I say, boy, I've got to figure this one out. Uh, And how does it fit in the context? D.L. Moody used to have a a strategy when he used to speak As he was going through a passage, he'd come up to a verse, and then he'd encounter a word in the text he had never known before, never seen, didn't know what to do with. His pronunciation was a little challenging, too. They said he could say Jerusalem in two syllables. All right? So the people knew that his education level wasn't really all that great in some things, but whenever he crossed a word he didn't know, he'd stop. He'd preach on everything before, and when he came back to the text, he started with the word after it, thereby bypassing the tough spots. I thought, well, that's an interesting practice, but you know Abraham Lincoln did it too. Maybe you don't know this. But Abraham Lincoln uh, used this in his leadership in the Black Hawk War. Most of the time we think of him in the Civil War context. 
and president and such like that. But when he was much younger, he volunteered to serve with the forces that were working against the Black Hawk Indians at the time in his region. And he was put in charge of a small group of men, and he'd spend the day with them just marching up and down the roads and along the fields and all these other things. And, and uh, he, he didn't mind doing that so much, except that as he went along a fence row and he needed to get his troops on the other side of that fence, he didn't know the command to do that. So he'd always pull them to a stop, dismiss the group, and tell them to reorganize on the other side of the fence. And that was his strategy to get around something that was a little challenging. My initial thoughts were to do something like that with verse 2 and 3, to be honest with you. As I looked at it, I said, doesn't that seem awkward? If you're studying the gifts of the Spirit and what the body does and all these other things, and then you're reading this passage and say, Paul, what are you doing in verse 2 and 3? It seems out of place. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Start in verse number 1, and just this is what I'm going to read. Verse 1 to verse 4. I'm going to skip the middle. All right. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. There are a variety of gifts in the same Spirit. That flows, doesn't it? That's smooth. That's, that's what we do. But what do you do with the filling? Those two verses in the middle, like, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I made known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. <sighs> Honestly, in study, in context, in all these things, this was something that reminded me of an event in my life. Many, many years ago, uh, when my wife Kay, she's with the Lord now, but when she was, uh, we were first married, she was learning how to drive. She did not know how to drive, and I was teaching her. Um, we only had a stick shift, and she was pregnant. There's some emotions that are a little more different during those days, and teaching a stick shift to an adult with emotions, right? The word awkward fits, just like, this is what I think of when I read a passage like this, I Oh, Paul, what are you doing? You're going, and it's kind of like you can't find the gear. What are you doing? That's my, that's my trouble, all right? When I was reading like that, I said, what is going on here? Um, commentators, you go dig out their books, they mostly skip these verses, or they go off in some other tangent and start talking about pieces of it, and they don't know how to put it in the middle. Here's what most of them said, and I, I'll just tell you what I read. Most of them said, Paul suddenly got the urge to tell him how to spot a false teacher. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that would be useful. But the Corinthian problem wasn't there because they weren't up to spiritual things, especially spiritual combat with false teachers. And I thought, if they couldn't even eat meat, how do you train them for battle with a false teacher when they're not even ready to even battle with their own spiritual walk? And I thought, well, that doesn't, I don't think that exactly fits the context well. Uh, he's addressing spiritual gifts. You know that from the context. Um, 
And I think if we're going to stay on our marching orders to get insight into this passage, we have to keep that in our mind. All right? As we walk through these verses, let's keep this in our mind. Paul is teaching about spiritual gifts. You saw that in verse 1. You saw that in verse 4. So that being our guide to understand this, let's see what we can do with verse 2 and 3. All right. Back to what we already know. We already know that the Corinthian Bible Church, which is the name I gave them, had a mess. <laughs> they made a mess out of everything they touched. Literally, you could read that in every chapter. Their church was inefficient. That's my word. Dysfunctional, if you want to ask contemporary people today to put a term on it. Unhealthy and immature. That was their church. They were the age of adults, but they acted like seven-year-olds. And I'm sorry for seven-year-olds here, okay? Just so you know. They acted like it, and they shouldn't have been. But they acted like seven-year-olds when they got together. Paul was writing, like in chapter number 11, that even their getting together was not a good idea. <laughs> he, he would say, you didn't get together for the better. You got together, and it's worse. If you want to see that, it's in verse 17 of chapter 11. I was talking to a friend of mine on the phone the other day, and when he called, I, I told him, well, I was working through First Corinthians 12, and he started laughing. And, and uh, he says, you remember back when we were in school at Southeastern Bible College, that was a long time ago, and he says, Dr. Talley, teaching on First Corinthians, he says, the best way to understand this book is to picture them all as pirates. And, I, and we laughed a long time about that. He said, but that's what they were. There was a pirate town. It was Navy stuff and who knows what. But, but he says, uh, they were all pirates. And if you think of them that way, that's what they were. And I said, wow, what a picture. Immature, dysfunctional, inefficient, unhealthy. They were pirates. They were also full of competition. The spirit of competition was heavy in this church. Um, they gave a lot of effort to excel over each other. And there's no surprise with that. Do you know that the town of Corinth was one of the locations of what we would call today the Olympic Games? They had a rotation back in those early, early, early days of the Olympic events where it was a four-year Every year they had an event in a different town. And, of course, the one year was the Olympics, all right? And the other three years were related to it. So they'd have the Olympic events one year, and if you win that, you got a beautiful olive wreath, all right? And then the next year they had the Pythian Games uh, somewhere in South Macedonia. That's north of Corinth in, on a map here in a place called Delphi. And if you won that, you got a laurel wreath. And then you went on to the Isthmian, the Isthmian Games, which was uh, near Athens. It's over to the east of Corinth a bit. And if you won that, you got pine as the reward. And then if you competed in the last of the events, it was in Corinth. And those games called the Namian Games, I think it's Namian, N-E-M-E-A-N, the Namian Games, uh, if you won that, you got celery. Of course, I wouldn't have run in that one. 
you got celery. I don't know what the... All right. Okay. So, anyway, this schedule went on. Year after year after year, they've competed every single year in these events. Corinth was one of those locations. Do you think sports was big to them? Paul used a lot of pictures of sport terminology in this book when he's trying to encourage them. Because these people were aggressive. And they were competitive and combative, and they caused divisions in the church. Early chapters, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. It's almost like they had their own uniforms to match them. They were all this color for one group, and this color for another group. And they divided up among themselves, and their pride elevated their own view of themselves. And they pushed others down who didn't measure up to their in their own minds, and they, they raced for the positions of prominence. They used their strength, and they used their eloquence, and they used their even their appearance to suggest that they were superior to other people. And Paul called them children. He says, you're immature. How does that match verse 2 and 3? Look at those verses again. Okay, these are going to be interesting. How does this, how does this leak? Let's take a simple take on this. They were being led by wrong sources. As you go into verse number two. Spiritual things, folks, is the department of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. He helps us understand spiritual things, because without him we can't. That's also in this book. But spiritual things are his thing. And to try to do spiritual things without him is a failure. It will not work. They cannot do it. Guess what they were doing? Trying to be spiritual without the use of the Holy Spirit. Without their dependence upon him. The key to the passages you really do have before you in verse 2 and 3 is is shown especially in verse number 3, by the Spirit. By the Spirit. He repeats it twice. Twice. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray by mute idols, however you were led, he says. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, mark that, that's important, says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Technical time. Ready? Don't turn off. Just for a minute. Technical time. The Greek preposition here, we translate by, is the little word en. E-N is the English equivalent. E-N, which is usually translated I-N in our English tongue. We say in. We were, we were uh, speaking in the Spirit of God. We were speaking except in the Spirit, Holy Spirit. We, we use that word in a lot. I want to, to picture something with you. And if you take notes and you're writing things down, I just want you to draw a picture in your notes. And if not, do it in your mind. It's real simple. Draw a circle. You know how? Very easy. This is not going to be hard part. Draw a circle. And right in the middle of that circle, put the letters I-N. That makes sense? In. Inside this circle. Right in the middle of it. 
Now, let's take it into our context and put some thoughts with it. Say that the circle represented the Holy Spirit. All right? Say that we're going to use it that way. And we talk about his activity. We talk about his influence. We talk about his person. We, anything you want. Put it all in that. That's the, what the circles are going to represent. And the in is where you and I ought to be in regard to what is influencing us. It's what should be influencing us. It should be shaping our behaviors and shaping our attitudes. A.T. Robertson, in his wonderful little book, Word Studies, uh, Word Pictures, he, he says the idea is in the sphere of the Holy Spirit. That's his department. That's his sphere. That's his circle. All right. The activities are, are supposed to take place inside of that circle. You got the picture? Okay. The in word that we're looking at here is also used for the idea of means. In other words, the agent or the cause of something that happens. For this we use the word by, and most of our English translations did that. I know some of you probably have a different word here and there, but most of us here in this room, if we just started sounding off, we would see the word, by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. We see the word by is suggested here. The Holy Spirit is the agent by which the activity takes place. He's the means by which it takes place. He's the cause by which it takes place. Make sense? All right? That's what it says, and if we go into verse 3, then he is the cause of what a person can say and what a person can't say. You see it? No one can say this except by the Holy Spirit. No one cannot say this except by the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit governing what they say and not say. When we stop on the phrases, Jesus is accursed or Jesus is Lord, and those are very significant phrases, we emphasize that, and a lot of commentators do, but they miss the essential part of the verse that Paul's putting in the context. And that is, neither of those phrases could be said without the governing ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right? He controls that. And you may say, how? Well, that's another study. I just know it's true. That's what the verse is saying in verse number 3 especially. It's the Holy Spirit's control. It's His influence that gives somebody the ability to say something or not say something. Now I could go bigger. Who is the one that influences us to do something or not do something? Who is the one who changes the attitudes in what we think when we do something or not do something? Guess what the context all the way through is? It's the work of the Holy Spirit in the church so that we are efficient, functioning body of believers. And guess what? It comes back to Him, doesn't it? It's Him. He is the governing force, power, whatever you want to call it, but He is the Holy Spirit of God. And He's at work in a church. And guess what? He changes even what we say or what we don't say. I think that's getting kind of big, don't you? If you go back to study Psalm 139, you'll find out something else about what you're able to say and not say. God already knows it before you say it. 
Is that powerful? Is that scary? Ooh. God is God, don't forget. He's not taken by surprise by anything we say or do. He already knows those things. What's interesting to me in this context, as that fits into this, when he wants to talk about spiritual gifts, he says, folks, the church is never standing independent of the Holy Spirit. It won't happen. Even when you think you can say what you want to say, he still governs it. This is incredible when you stop to think about it. Look at verse number one. Let's back up again here. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. He gets in an eager hurry to go to the core issue. Spiritual things. I want to talk to you about spiritual things. I know we have the word gifts here. Uh, New American Standard puts it in italics because they've inserted the word gifts because it's technically not in the text. It just says spirituals. It's the adjective that stands there by itself. And it's, it, it's we insert the word gifts because that's a context in verse number four. There are varieties of gifts. But he's talking about spiritual things. He says the gifts are only part of the picture. Spiritual things. Folks, that includes the gifts by the Holy Spirit. That includes the results by the Holy Spirit. That includes the ministries of the Holy Spirit. That includes the attitudes that He works on. The spiritual words, the spiritual unity, the spiritual maturity, the function of it all. It includes the Holy Spirit and it includes the spiritual man. All that's wrapped up in a little phrase. And when you line them all up within this giant circle of spiritual things, and then you insert an immature man in the middle of that picture, you no longer have efficiency. You no longer have the organism operating like it ought to operate according to God's design. You've got a piece out of place. And that's the whole picture of the context that Paul's dealing with in this Corinthian church. Oh, you guys wear the garb. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have all the gifts you possibly will ever need to function as a church body, and yet you're immature. How is that going to look? So in this, I think this is kind of interesting. He starts to address these people as a whole congregation. And we have many translations have the word brethren here. Newer ones are inserting brothers and sisters, and we could argue about that all day long. But it simply means he's addressing everybody. All right? The whole church. He didn't address this just to the leadership. He said, all of us need to know this. All of us, both men and women, he need to understand this. Because if any of us are wrong in the way we're operating inside this thing called the church, it's going to affect the whole. You know it? One person out of place, is that going to help? Hmm. It, it creates a, a, a challenge here. He says, now, I want to talk to you people because I don't want you unaware. See it at the end of verse 1? Let me dig a little bit for you here. Unaware. You have agneo. Agnaeo, I guess how you'd say it. No knowledge is the two words put together. Matter of fact, uh, no applicational knowledge is what he's really pinning on them. That's the knowledge that comes from the steps of maturity. 
the knowledge that comes from the experience and the process of learning. We don't teach the kids in first grade what we teach the kids in tenth grade. Why? Because we got all those years to fill? No, because they're not ready for it. And you've got to walk them through the process. You've got to teach them addition before you try division, right? Make sense? Here he said, you people do not know the process of maturing in this. You're unaware. You're unaware. You know what? We get our word agnostic from this word. And you say, well, well what's that? Well, let me give you a definition. Of course, it's good because I pulled it off Google. A person who believes that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God or of anything beyond material phenomena. A person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. A person who claims neither faith nor disbelief in God. The, the source adds the word skeptic and doubter. Let me put it right on the button here. An agnostic is not ignorant of the facts. Not ignorant of the facts, but refuses to believe the facts. There's a difference. The Corinthians were not ignorant of the truth. They were immature in their obedience to that truth. That's what Paul says. This unaware thing is more than just, I don't know. It's actually revealing something deeper, and it is their implication to ignore willful ignorance. Now, does that show immaturity or what? He says, I don't want you to be there. Actually, by saying this, he's acknowledging that they know, but they won't do it. And he's put his finger right on the sore spot. With these verses. Right on the sore spot that they had. And I'm sure they didn't like it. He could have treated all the symptoms all day long. But they had a problem that they needed a cure for the disease. And the disease was actually among them. He wanted to address spiritual things. But they chose to set their minds on things that were not of the Holy Spirit, and not of His works. And He says, you know what? Here's our problem. Here's our problem. You are in the practice of letting a lot of things influence you in your lives. Look at verse 2. He says, before you were saved, you were pagans. Right? We use that phrase all the time when one of my kids don't come to church on Sunday. We call them a pagan. Just so you know, Megan's not here today, guess what? <laughs> we use that phrase, you were pagans! And here he says, you know, you, you people were led about by a mute idol. I like the King James, dumb. It was a dumb idol. What are they doing? They take a rock. They, they take a piece of wood. They, they took maybe fancy silver or gold. And you walked according to its dictates. Those things couldn't even talk. Go ahead, try it with the rocks this afternoon. See how far you get. They didn't even talk. He says, that's what you were. A rock has no brains. 
How is it going to think through your life for you? You really trust it? How many had pet rock? No, no, never mind. It had no brains. It, it couldn't think. It couldn't say. It couldn't lead. It couldn't help. It couldn't give you wisdom. It could do nothing. And guess what he says? That's what you used to do. You used to sit there and wait for a rock or a tree branch or, or a chunk of metal to tell you how to live your life. You were led that way. You were, what is this, Paul? They were willing to listen to it and let it influence their life. I like the fact he said you were that way. You were that way. But in that is this coolest thought. So it's kind of like this. You were that way. So why are you still doing it? Why are you still acting like that? That's not you anymore. When you became a believer, do you not know the Holy Spirit? He's God, and He moved inside of you. He's not the assistant God. You know who He is, don't you? The Holy Spirit is God Himself, and He moved inside of you. How does He work? Well, there's a big study on that. But we're told as believers, we do know that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do we not know that? Who did he tell that to? The Corinthians. He says, do you not know that the Holy Spirit's inside of you? The Holy Spirit is the agent by which we are saved in the first place. It's the Holy Spirit who has regenerated us. It's the Holy Spirit who indwells us. He puts us within the body of Christ. We call that baptizes. But he puts us in the body of Christ. That's not about water. That's about literally we're immersed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And then he seals you there. And that's his work. And his job is not done in you until you are matured to the image of Christ. That's his work. That's what he's doing right now. Even in everybody here in this church that's a believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit's in there. And he's doing that work right now. To make you like Jesus. He is your teacher. He is your guide. He gives you insight into God's word. And without him, you can't understand spiritual things. In other words, he's indispensable in the Christian life. You can't do it without him. You can't be saved without him. You cannot do the Christian life without him. You just can't. What we need is his influencing, his influence dominating our Christian life. That's called walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit. And in, in Galatians 5, there's a reality there, folks. Either you are walking by the Spirit or you're walking by the flesh. You want to guess where the Corinthians were? They were walking by the flesh. And he says, no, 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 why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? It's an easy test to take. Let me give it to you. How do I know if I'm walking by the flesh? Well, are there things like this in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostility, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, or anything like that? You say, well, that's walking by the flesh. Those are the signs of it. You say, well, how do I know if I'm walking by the Spirit? 
You'll be dominated with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5 spells that out pretty clearly. We're either walking one way or the other because you can't walk together. They never cooperate. Spirit and the flesh don't have the same tracks going the same way. The flesh goes this way. The spirit goes that way. The flesh goes to destruction. The spirit goes to life. Which one are you on? As a Christian, I ask you, because it's quite possible to be a Christian and be dominated by the flesh. Sounds scary? That's what he's talking about. You Corinthians are this way. When you have the Holy Spirit in you and you should be this way. Who is influencing you? When you were, before you knew Christ, you listened to a rock. Are you still doing that? What's influencing your life right now? What's guiding you in these things? Why does Paul have to spend the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians addressing love with these people? Because they didn't know how to do it. You know what that says on my dashboard when it flashes red? They're not walking by the Spirit. Because the Spirit of the Spirit is love. They didn't get it. All the way through this book, he's just putting his finger on the pulse of this church and saying, folks, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Spiritual ignorance is not going to help. You know the truth, so do it. When you were pagans, you were led by these false idols. These mute idols that couldn't even talk. You were led by them. They influenced you. They led you. They influenced you. But don't you know that as a Christian, it's the Holy Spirit that is influencing you now. Even the things you say you cannot say, or the things you don't say you can say, because of the influence of the Holy Spirit, it's by Him. By Him, by Him, by Him. And that's the whole point that Paul's emphasizing at the start. Your problem is spiritual in nature. You are not operating by the Holy Spirit. You are willfully being ignorant of who you are to be, so that you can be whatever you want to be. He says, that's not healthy. You used to be led about by a rock and a thing, and you're still acting like it. The reality is, the Holy Spirit in you is greater than you are. You hear that? The Holy Spirit in you is greater than you are. He is God and you are not. Does that make it simpler? That's who He is. If we're talking about spiritual things and realize you can do nothing spiritual without the influence of the Holy Spirit. How are we going to function as a church in spiritual things without Him? How can we? It's impossible. We have to have the Holy Spirit's control in this matter. So don't deceive yourselves. I could almost hear Paul writing this in the phrase. Don't deceive yourself. The church does not function by the power or the wisdom or the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit. That's how it functions. That's how it operates. And any effort that's made apart from the sphere of the Holy Spirit or without His means to bring it about is really useless efforts. They say that a a sign, uh, I think it was of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again with the same results. And this this is what 
many times the churches function in this way. They keep throwing things into the into the works. Say, let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's do this. Let's do that. And if the Spirit's not in it, guess what? Boy, is that a waste of time. What does it produce? The same thing the last thing did. Nothing. That's inefficiency. That's the core of immaturity in the activity of a congregation. So I think we're keeping on this path, and it's real simple. If you want to step away from disobedience, walk by the Spirit. And it says, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It takes us right to the place where we need to go. There's a, there's a similar picture in the Old Testament, actually. Uh, we won't read it right now. Our time's getting short. But Zechariah chapter 4 has a very interesting um, record of a time when Zerubbabel, great name. Nobody names their kids that anymore, do they? It's probably too many letters and we don't know where to put them. But uh, Zerubbabel was given a task of rebuilding the temple. And if you read in that passage in chapter 4, I picture him standing there looking at it saying, Oh, is that going to be a tough one? What does he see? Rubble. That's where the old temple used to be. It's, it's, a, it's just an a unusable piece of ground. It's just broken brass all over it. I, I could see him looking at it saying, Oh, this is not going to work. And God's right there beside him and says, Zerubbabel, it's not by your might. It's not by your power. It's by my spirit. That will get it done. Many times when we look at the church and we see it like this Corinthian church, it's so disjointed. Paul, you're, you're looking at a church with a real problem inside of it. No doubt it hurt the Corinthians to read it. How many of us would like this letter written to us? We wouldn't enjoy that at all. It could be very jarring to read such things. But how are we functioning in these things called the church? It's healthy for somebody to say, you know, that's not right. Let's, get, let's make it right. You can look at the rubble all around. You can see the hurt all around. You can see the problems all around. I think the American church is, is a good illustration of a lot of problems out there. And I'm thinking, well, who's going to be mature and take the spiritual thing and understand it doesn't work without the Holy Spirit and commit themselves to doing it His way? Who's going to do that? I know as individuals we need to be that way, but I think as a church we need to be that way too. As a corporate body we need to think that way because there are some who are willfully ignorant. They are comfortable in immaturity. They don't want the challenge. They don't want the change. And when we say, let's pray that the Holy Spirit has full influence in our lives, they're saying, whoa, what are you saying? He's got my Monday too? Yeah? Yeah? Do you know what you're surrendered to when you say, Holy Spirit, influence me? Ooh, boy, is that a prayer. But I promise you this, I've heard this quote years ago, wherever the Spirit is at work, change is inevitable. That's His job. We want to be what God designed us to be? Who's leading you? Who's leading you? 
You see how those verses now suddenly have some sort of toho for us as we walk through the issues of the spiritual gifts and the spiritual function of the church. He really came down and said, folks, who's influencing you in this? Who's influencing you? Let the Holy Spirit have his full influence in our lives. Let's see the difference he makes in our corporate fellowship, in the way that we operate, in the way that we set our goals, in the way that we share with one another. Let's see what happens when we walk his way and grow to be mature in Christ. I would, I would give you one thing. People will notice a difference. They will notice a difference because it's the Holy Spirit at work. You want to be there? That's what I've seen in this passage, and boy, it convicts my heart. It probably does yours too. Let's pray about this. Heavenly Father, we've got this text before us, and yeah, it's a challenging one, but the message of it is challenging. It asks us to evaluate, really, how are we led? By what do we give ourselves to influence our decisions and our attitudes? our actions and our words. Who do we trust? Who do we count on to make us what we ought to be? I know, Lord, it's easy in our day and age, in our world, in our customs, in our traditions, in all these things that we've ever done as churches, to do it by our strength and our wisdom and our programs, our ideas, our efforts, And yet somehow we want our glory in there too. Too often we do it our way and not yours. And if we're going to get a a handle on this passage, we have to start with this square. It's the first one. Who are we going to influence us? Since your Holy Spirit's already within us, Lord, and all he does is good, and all he does is right, And all he does is make us into the image of Christ. It seems natural that we would want to say, then, Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to you. But our flesh is going to fight it. It's going to scream and yell and kick the whole way because it doesn't want us to do that. So it comes down to this, Lord, as to us in your presence. And who do we want to be? Who do we want to see succeed in this fellowship? Who do we want to influence it and shape it? And if our prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit have full reign in our midst, and we submit ourselves to that, Lord, give us the courage to stand there. Give us the attitude. Give us the will. Give us the desire. Give us all that there is in this, that we might walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. We do long to see the results of all this. But today is a commitment day in our own hearts, as individuals and as a church, as to where we're going to stand and who's going to influence us. And I pray, Lord, that your name is the one that gets the glory in our church. It's your name that we depend upon and we seek to follow. Your wisdom and your word, your Holy Spirit to guide us. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is you've designed Now may we follow through and follow like we should. In Jesus' name, amen.